I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News. And here we go with the Jack Riccardi Show. It's kind of a Miami theme today, Christian. <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> Seemed like the right thing. Uh, I got a question for you. What's up? Is a journalist? I mean, obviously, we understand the big story today. We all understand that. Mm-hmm. Why do we cover the plane taking off? <laughs> you know why? Because people watch. And when it comes to TV, anything live television can do mm-hmm. to get to get eyes. So it's a visual, you know. Well, so many people have just completely gone digital. You know, the the Netflix phenomena, Hulu, yeah. YouTube, and, and it goes on and on and on. So if you're a television station or a cable network, if there's a way to get any eyes yeah. on what you're doing, yeah. that's it. And what bigger name to do it with? Yeah. There you go. Well, I mean, I get covering him and his movement, and I might even get the motorcade. i got to draw the line at the plane taking off. I just, you can just tell me. Jack, did He's you ever flying go to, to New Jersey? Did you, you ever know? did you ever go to an air show? Sure. Well, here you go. Here's a national air show. <laughs> okay, that's that's a good answer. I'll take that. I will accept that answer. Thank you, sir. All right, we're going to dive right in here. We got a lot to talk about. I got a lot of things I'm going to say that will make you mad. So I might as well get an early start so you have plenty of time to to tell me how wrong I am. Uh, you can join the show at two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. First of all. I don't know if you watched any of the coverage today. We were just talking about it. But um, most of the day, the the networks had their cameras focused on the sidewalk outside this courthouse in in Miami. And the sidewalk and the the grounds of the courthouse, and I guess the streets around it, were full of Trump supporters, big flags, signs, American flags, um, people standing around. And that was pretty much all they did. They were just standing around. I had a friend of mine who got all nervous uh, around midday, uh, texted me, oh, I'm, I'm worried it's going to be January 6th again. I said, no, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, these, are, these are really good people. You know? I, I, I mean, these are, these are people that I think care about this country. Hillary Clinton has called them a cult. And that just goes to show what a, what a haughty, dismissive, snipe of a person she is because i think these are people that care a lot about the country i think these are people with jobs and families and they've stepped away from things they should be doing because they felt they feel that something is wrong they feel that something is wrong with the country they feel that something has gone wrong with with the american way they are uh not just there for trump i believe they are there for even bigger things and trump and his presence and what's happening in that courtroom was a focal point for them. But my understanding, and you can tell me what you think, I think these are people that love the country, don't just love Donald Trump. And I would rather have any one of them sit at my table for dinner tonight uh, than any of the weirdos and the nudniks that we saw at the Pride event at the White House or anything like that. I, I would be proud to call any of those people a friend, and I, I'm sure I do call many people like that a friend. I feel for them, though, because I don't know what the temperature was in Miami today, but it looked pretty hot, and there wasn't much shade, and they're standing there, and they're sweating, and nothing is happening, and most of them never probably even saw Donald Trump. And they are a movement without leadership. I mean, there's a leader, but there these are people... And I go back even to January 6th. 
when you have this many people this concerned and motivated and they're they'll go where you are and they'll show up and they want to be heard and they're there for you gotta you gotta tell them what to do and the only thing we're telling them to do is what not to do don't get violent peacefully protest okay but being outside the courthouse doesn't accomplish anything again don't take this the wrong way i'm not putting them down but being there doesn't accomplish anything it's a courthouse. It's not a legislature. It's not subject to the popular whims and wills of the crowd outside, as the legislature is and should be. A courtroom, whether it's the Supreme Court deciding the, the abortion case or this courtroom or any courtroom, is supposed to operate regardless of what the people outside are saying. And so I would really like it if Donald Trump would care enough about the people that are there for him to give them some guidance. You know, Eric Hoffer, the philosopher, said people join movements because they don't think they can get anything done on their own. So you got a movement. Now, give them some places to go and some things to do that would actually help, that would help the country. And I don't think we're doing that. And I put a lot of that on President Trump, and I'm sorry that he's not doing it. And I don't know why he's not doing it. Speaking of Hillary Clinton, my mind goes back to her today as we watch the indictment of Donald Trump. Because she created a situation with classified documents that undoubtedly were seen by hostile powers, that undoubtedly did expose our secrets. She did it intentionally and knowledgeably. Hillary Clinton has forgotten more about the operation of government than Donald Trump probably has ever known. And she did all of that, and the FBI shrugged it off. So the same people, the same security state that is trying to get me to care about Trump's documents is failing as far as I'm concerned. Because if it mattered, it would have mattered then, and it didn't. So don't tell me this is about national security. Having said that, these people are awful, but Trump walked right into their trap. I mean, he knows, you know, I know, my dog knows, that they're going to come after him every day. So you don't give them more material. You don't give them more rope to hang you with. You don't give them another stick to beat you with. But he did. Hoarding these documents was stupid. And from what we're learning, these were not presidential records these were not things like memos and notes for meetings i mean most of it was and that's what's in all those boxes the stuff that presidents usually keep is to commemorate highlights and meetings and and photos therein and and what have you and you could call it memoir material you could call it souvenirs you could call it ego stuff i don't know the stuff that they're going after him for are are things that are not covered, I think we're going to find out, are not intended to be covered by the presidential records law. In other words, it's one thing to take stuff that was about meetings you were in and speeches you gave and letters people wrote to you and, and what have you. If he wants to keep the Kim Jong-un letter and show it to people, that's fine. But if he kept stuff that was sensitive, that involved ongoing national security that's not his stuff that doesn't belong to him and again i don't think he exposed it to anybody i don't think he did any harm to the country but he gave them an opportunity and they're taking it 
And so now what we hear from people is, well, because they're doing this to him, I'm going to vote for him. I want him to get back in there because I want him to strike back at this weaponization of government, this deep state. Well, okay, I get that. But then I think that was actually why we hired him in the first place. That was why we sent him in 2016. And to be honest, I don't think he did a very good job with the deep state. By his own admission, he appointed people that were disloyal. By his own admission, he retained people who were disloyal. He made hardly a dent in the deep state. The deep state did a lot more to him than he did to them. And that's a fact. And then in the fourth year of his presidency, he handed the country over to Anthony Fauci. So if I'm looking for someone to stop the bleeding and to start to take on probably the greatest project any president has ever undertaken. I mean, this is bigger than Reconstruction after the Civil War. To take on just the Justice Department alone, to figure out what you're going to do with these agencies and these powers and the IRS and this corruption and this this um, entrenched uh, government within a government that answers to no one. The, the job is massive. And I didn't see evidence that he was up to it. I, he, he certainly knew how to describe it. He called us, he called our attention to it. I'm grateful for that. I, I didn't see him getting it done. And then there is the argument that this is also unfair. You know, it, it, what's happened to him is unfair. It's persecution. It's, um, it's not equal justice. Look at Hillary. Look at, look at Joe Biden, which we'll talk about in a minute. And I get that. And you're right. Can't argue with that. And if Trump is your hero, let me just say this. Heroes don't always get what they deserve. Countless men have served this country in uniform, in war, been maimed, been injured, had their lives turned upside down. They didn't get what they deserved. Would they have done it anyway if they had known they weren't going to get what they deserved? Most of them would have. Our, our country would, would have a very different history if everyone who served it only served it believing, expecting that they would get what they deserved for their service. So at some point in the story of Donald Trump and his election to the presidency, we're going to have to acknowledge that a lot of things happen in life that are unfair. A lot of times you don't get a fair shake, but you make sacrifices and you render service to help people going forward to ensure the preservation of our way of life or our system. And I think a lot of us appreciate the things Trump did do in the preservation and advancement of those things. He changed politics. He, he raised people's expectations exponentially for what they should expect when they elect a Republican or a so-called conservative. We want much more now than we used to want or claim we wanted. So I, I give him credit for that, but heroes don't complain about fairness. They do what's necessary. And, and I think he needs to start leading the people that are so um, moved by this in a way that helps the country go forward. He could do that. You could start today. So I want to talk about that. 
5555. Yesterday, this happened during our show, and we didn't have a chance to really address it. Um, this is Chuck Grassley, the senator from Iowa. He's he, He's been there a long time, probably too long. But he's a straight-level guy, level even-keel kind of guy. He's not some crazy wingnut bomb thrower. He, he, he's a very, very solid, you know, senator. And he said this on the floor of the uh, of the U.S. Senate, cut number two. The 1023 produced to the House committee's redacted reference that the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden allegedly has audio recordings of his conversation with them. Seventeen such recordings. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between him and Hunter Biden. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses two audio recordings of phone calls between him and then Vice President Joe Biden. These recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case that he got into a tight spot. Special Counsel Jack Smith has used a recording against former President Trump. Well, what is U.S. Attorney Weiss doing with respect to these alleged Joe and Hunter Biden recordings Mm. that are apparently relevant to the high-stakes bribery scheme? Yeah, I mean... Absolutely right. Uh, if one of the pieces of evidence, and we'll talk to our legal experts about this against Trump, is that he talks about showing somebody at Mar-a-Lago a secret document, and he says something in the recording like, "I could have classified, I could have declassified it, but I didn't, and now I can't." Um, we these we need to know where we stand with this FBI informant, what the gist of it is. I, I'm not asking for national security secrets to be revealed. I'm not even asking for the tape to be played publicly, but we need acknowledgement that they're going to use it. They've got it. We should hear or at least read a transcript of what's on it. And we also should know what are the documents that Joe Biden had in his garage and in at the, at the uh, Penn Center and um, at his other residences, which he is somehow able to afford, never having made more than $175,000 a year. Um we, we need to know what they have, and that is the only way to even begin to take seriously the prosecution of former President Trump. I mean, it is not a coincidence, right? Please don't tell me that it's a coincidence that the Biden thing happened and broke in the news, and now we are seeing what we're seeing today in Miami. And let me just throw one more log on the fire before we start to take your calls at 210-599-5555. And this was also in the news yesterday during our show, and we didn't have a chance to really get to it. But now there are multiple published reports that say that the Chinese military was working with the Wuhan lab. And, and you know, I'm sure you know that the Chinese military is inveigled in everything they do in China. It's, it's part of the ownership of, of so-called private companies. It's in universities. It's in science. It's in everything. It's a military government, essentially, and the government is part of and in everything they do. They don't have a private sector. The Chinese military was working in the Wuhan lab to develop a virus, a mutant virus, and 
a vaccine for it so that they could use that bioweapon as a weapon and protect themselves. So you've got that breaking, and I'm, I'm sure you didn't fall out of your chair in shock, but any one of these things, the Biden story, the COVID and China's uh, China's military, we we need to deal with these. And we are being pulled away and distracted and told, no, 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 these boxes at Mar-a-Lago, that's what's important. And that's why I think this is such a serious time and we need to be serious about who we vote for and how we vote and, and what we intend with that vote. So those are some things I'm I'm kind of dwelling on mulling today. Uh, I want to hear from you. Uh, we'll bring on a couple of legal experts to kind of break down some of this as well. 210-599-5555. The Bidens got very, very rich in a very, very suspicious way. It's being investigated right now. He is the president right now. That should be in the front burner. The, the Chinese military was messing around with the virus at Wuhan right before COVID took on and took over the whole world. That should be on the other front burner right now. Trump's battle is an important battle for rule of law and obviously for him, but it is not the same thing as the 2024 election. When you think about the stuff we talk about on this show and the issues we we connect over on this show, and you have that sense that, that Western civilization itself is kind of sliding, you know, the cheese is sliding off the cracker, um, it's going to be very important for your vote to be forward-looking, not backward-looking. So we will cover this. We will talk about it. I'm interested in it. I know you are. But I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. Um, I'm sending a, a, a young girl out into the world. I care about her future. I don't care how long I live, but I care about the life and the world into which she goes and the, and the America into which she goes. And I just, I, um, I think this is the biggest, we're about to elect a president who will have the biggest job ever if we elect the right person. Or we're about to elect Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom who will have eight years to put the Joe Biden pedal to the metal. And there are just way too many things that are way too important to cast this vote spitefully or symbolically. Gentleman yesterday said that he was voting symbolically. I, I, I respect it. I do. I just don't agree with it. Uh, so we're talking about the Trump Plea of not guilty at the indictments today. Mike is on the radio on KTSA. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. That was such an awesome opening to your show. Um, if, if people didn't hear it, I would encourage them to go back and listen to the, the podcast to catch what you said. Uh, and the, the, about the only thing I would add is what I feel like former President Trump, he just made this about himself. It's not about you. And I've heard you say this kind of thing. It's for the good of the country. It's about the United States. It's not about you. I, I know he's being persecuted. Um, we know there's a it's a banana public or whatever term you want to use. There's not the same uh, uh, the application of justice for people like Hillary Clinton and Biden. We know that, but it's not about Trump. And I'm done with him. I, I voted for him. I love what he did. What he came in. Uh, starting to do but 
it, there's just so much drama and issues. So we got to keep the focus on the reality of what is happening. I completely agree with what you're what you said. I think his supporters do love the country. He loves the country, but it has just become distracting. And you know they're going to cheat again. They did it before. They're going to do it again. Um, we've got to do something to save the country. I don't know what the answer is. I don't have the answers, but your opening was really fantastic. Oh, I, I that's very and say that. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. That's very kind of you. I, I really do appreciate you, and I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. I, I And look, um, to some degree, his fight is our fight. And to some degree, as he has often said, when they come for him, they're coming for us. I get that. We all get that. We We can appreciate that. But at the same time, we can look at what's happening with our schools, with our children, with our laws, with crime, with the economy, with our, our standing in the world, with this loose, crazy talk about sending nuclear weapons to Ukraine and, and recognize that the job is big and the job is bigger than his legal defense. His legal defense is not the same thing as defending this country. And, again, to the extent that there's some overlap and, and what's happening to him as representative of, I, okay, I'll give you that. Um, and I love the people that are out there for him. I love that. But I know they love this country, too, and it's time somebody told them what they can do with their energy and their mind and their heart besides stand on a sidewalk outside a courthouse. Uh, joining the show now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners line is retired judge and former Bear County District Attorney Steve Hilbig. And uh, judge, because I'm assuming that some of our listeners may not have ever been indicted, um, I thought it would be good to uh, maybe just give us like the the layman's quick guide to what probably went on in that courtroom in Miami today with Donald Trump uh, and the and the charges. Well, it was a very perfunctory hearing. In other words, very routine. Uh, when someone has been indicted and they have not previously been arrested on a charge, then there's what we call an arraignment. And at the arraignment, uh, the defendant is asked is whether or not he wants to have the the indictment read to him. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, the answer is no. And then the, the judge uh, goes ahead and then decides uh, what the bond should be and what conditions of bond should be. So uh, that's about what happens at an arraignment if someone has not been formally arrested on those charges before. So he was in front of a magistrate, and they were saying that uh, basically this magistrate is just like every week that court has a different one, and it was just that. So as you say, very routine, very kind of, uh, I guess, bookkeeping. But what is the next step and 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 walk us through the significance of they keep talking about this judge Eileen Collins who is a federal judge who was appointed by president trump and 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 what that might mean or the likelihood of that if she presides over his trial well starting with that uh all it means is that somebody thinks well maybe she's going to be biased maybe she's going to put uh, you know, her thumb on the scale in favor of Trump because Trump appointed her. And so, therefore, we ought to get somebody who was appointed by a Democratic president. But, of course, if that happens, then they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, now he's putting his thumb on the scale or she's putting his thumb on, or her, uh, thumb on the scale, you know, on behalf of the government. So 
it, you know, it's a talking point that really doesn't mean anything. The next thing that happens from here is that uh, uh, the defense will have an opportunity to go and file whatever motions that they want to file. Uh, we talked the other day about uh, arguing that maybe it's selective prosecution and, and having the court look at that and then determine whether or not the court would believe that, yes, the case ought to be dismissed because of selective prosecution. Uh, they're probably going to ask for what's called a bill of particulars. Uh, again, that's where the uh, defense can say, well, we haven't been provided enough information in the indictment, and we want the uh, government to tell us additional things that support the charges that are in the indictment. Now, of course, it's a 49-page indictment, uh, and that's one of the longest indictments I've ever seen in my history, even as a federal prosecutor. Uh, but but those are some of the things, uh, motions for discovery. But again, most of the time now, there are standing discovery orders that uh, require both sides to turn over certain items to the other side uh, in anticipation of the trial. So those are going to be the things that go forward at this point, pretrial motions, ruling on the pretrial motions. And then there may or may not be what we call interlocutory appeals, where if somebody uh, made a motion and the judge denied it, uh, they may have the ability to appeal that to a higher court before the trial actually begins. And, of course, if that happens, then that would delay the start of the trial. Any any rough idea of how, <clears throat> of how long this could take? And I realize there's a lot of variance to that, but, I mean, are we talking about something that might not start for a year or less or more? Or what? No, I, I think, you know, a year uh, typically... In federal court, uh, they they try to move things along, but of course this is just such a complicated case that I think uh, if nothing else was going on, it would be at least a year, if not more. But you also have other cases involving the president, a former president, where he's already been indicted, in other words, up in New York. Uh, and so the question becomes uh, the scheduling of that in terms of is that going to go before the federal case? Uh, most of the time, the feds think they're superior to any uh, state court, and so a lot of times the feds will say, well, we don't care that you have state charges pending. We want to try mm -hmm. them in our court first. And, of course, uh, the DA up there might say, well, that's a stronger case against Trump in federal court, so I'll, I'll say, yeah, go ahead and try them in federal court first. Here's what's probably a dumb question. Um, can a defendant like Donald Trump uh, be absent from these proceedings, and if he's required to be there, does he have an excuse in that he's running for president? Uh, he is going to be required to be there for all hearings, and he doesn't have an excuse that he's running for president. Uh, okay. You know, in other words, <laughs> the federal judges kind of say, hey, we don't care who you are, you're going to have to mm -hmm. attend court, and mm -hmm. uh, there is no such thing as, well, I'm busy running for president. Okay. Now, um, we're talking with Steve Hilbig, former Bear DA and uh, retired judge, and we're going to get to your phone calls here in just a minute. Grab a line at 210-599-5555. Uh, Everybody's seen the pictures, Judge, of the you know piles of boxes. I think there was a photograph of a bathroom that had like a whole wall of boxes, and there was all these boxes, and they're pretty good size. You know, they're like bankers' boxes. But then when you read the indictment, it's it's talking about a fairly limited number of documents that wouldn't even fill one box, probably. So it, you kind of get the feeling that the the photographs are somewhat 
uh, exaggerated in terms of the quantity and egregiousness of this uh, retention of documents. And then I've also heard people say that the 37 counts, is it 37? Is that, do I have the number right? I think that's correct, yes, sir. Might be like count stacking. What is count stacking, and do you think that is at play here? I think it is at play, and count stacking is what the New York DA did. Uh, so he, the New York DA and what the uh, uh, U.S. attorney had done or the special prosecutors done is that they charged as a count every separate document. So, for instance, if you have, if you have a box that has five documents, you know, you could certainly say, okay, well, you, you are in, illegally in possession or illegally retaining these documents. But what they did is said, no, 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 we're going to charge count one, document one, char- uh, count two, document two, count three, mm-hmm. document three. And I believe that the first, I forget, I looked at the indictment the other day, but it's kind of like the first 27 counts are just separate documents. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, it, it, it again, we talked the other day about how a federal grant, a federal jury will get to see the indictment uh, when they go back to deliberate guilt or innocence. And so putting a picture in an indictment, uh, I mean, I've never seen that done before. But, again, it's only to, uh, I guess, influence the jury or, or turn the jury against the defendant because it's like, look how reckless he was. And that's the mm-hmm. same thing with including the comments that he made while as a uh, candidate about the handling of uh, classified documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. All of that, I think, is just simply to turn the jury against him. Former Judge Steve Hilbig with us. Uh, Always great to have you. Always learn something. Thank you for the time today. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Jack. Congratulations to the Denver Nuggets winning the NBA title last night. Your hockey fan tonight is a uh, could be a uh, decisive game in the Stanley Cup Finals between Las Vegas and Florida. Uh, Vegas up, I think, three one in that series. It's tough. Tough time to be a postseason sports fan in Florida. Sorry about that. Uh, but Florida is the big focus today. That's where Trump was for the indictments. Uh, he has since jetted out of there. We're talking about that and many other things with you at 210-599-5555. Ted is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Ted. Good afternoon, Jack. You know, it's not illegal to own uh, colored copies of confidential cover list, uh, cover pages, top secret cover pages, for your eyes only cover pages. You know, you can go out on the web and get the PDFs and print them out for yourself, and you can scatter them around your office, and it looks funny. And here's what I'm saying. Back when that picture of all of the top secret and confidential cover pages uh, scattered out all over the floor at Mar-a-Lago was first brought out, it was pretty quickly debunked and uh, corroborated that actually that material was neatly in a box, but the FBI tossed it out on the floor and spread it out. That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah, I would challenge the judge to basically, if they try to include that picture in any part of this this, uh, um, indictment paperwork, if that is a if that is sort of a, an exhibit, it needs to be stricken, and the FBI agents who staged it, probably with the help of the same prop master that did the J six committee stuff. Uh, I mean, it is all playing out like a like a really low budget television show, mm-hmm. and you know, it's I think it, you know it goes back to uh, possibly 
a comment that you made last week that you could see Trump being the kind of person that probably likes mentos. He, he probably saves everything, you know, golf balls, paperweights, uh, you know, letter openers, swizzle sticks, confidential, you know, top secret document cover pages. But I want to know, were there any top secret or confidential documents under those cover mm-hmm. pages that were shown mm-hmm. strewn about? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I don't know why you would ha- why would you have the cover pages and not have the document? Why not? Because it's fun. It's it's oh look how important no. I am. I have a cover. Hey, Ted, I'm not I'm not going to argue with you because both of us are just guessing. But I I would I would hope he's going into court with a better. No offense to you, Ted, but I would hope they're going in with a better theory than that. You know what I'm saying? Like you because know it's did, fun Jack? is not gonna, I, because it's fun is not going to be a good defense. Here's what I would look I, at though, Ted. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I admit. I actually, as a joke, not the same day that that picture came out, I went out and found those same cover pages on the Internet, and I printed a bunch of them around, and I, mm. I, I just kind of laid them around the office. And everybody oh, okay. got a good chuckle at them because okay. it was like, you know, that's goofy. And I'm like, yeah, Donald Trump's goofy, too. You, you, so, you sound like you'd be a fun guy to work with, Ted. Uh, and messy. I've, and, and, yeah, I wouldn't want to have to clean your office. All right. Thank you, sir. Um, I was going to say, and Ted kind of reminded me of this. I would keep an eye on this other guy. What is his name? Walt Nada? Nuda? Nada, I think you said. Walt Nada was a, um, he's, he's ex-military. He was Trump's valet at the White House. He followed Trump into post-White House life. All, all the former presidents have these body men or valets or whatever you want to call them. I think they sometimes call them body men. These are These are personal aides, so these are not like your press secretary or your legal advisor, this is the guy that gets you a Diet Coke or picks up your dry cleaning or, you know, whatever the case might be, gets things for you, takes care of, of, of personal errands for you. And this, this man is, is apparently very, very loyal to and just loves Donald Trump and has worked with Donald Trump and was, was involved in this because he handled the boxes. But now I'm wondering, and so he's he's been indicted as well. But I'm wondering if the idea with Walter Nada is to turn him. Like, did they indict him to scare him? And then they go to him and say, well, you know, you're, you're in a lot of trouble here. And Trump, Trump's one thing, but you're, you're, you're a little guy. Uh, why don't you just tell us what you know? He, he could be a prosecution witness if they turned him, if they flipped him. And I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying I think that's something to watch. Uh, I, I think, I think clearly, Trump has to be worried not just about the the boxes and the papers, but about people, because again, by his own admission, he has been the subject of a lot of disloyalty, and we're going to find out now uh, who can be turned, who can be flipped, uh, and who can't be, and uh, that that becomes really important starting right now. Definitely glad that the uh, Denver Nuggets closed out the uh, NBA Finals last night. Were you? Well, not that I care about either team, but my uh, my 87-year-old mother has been staying up uh, late watching the finals and watching the playoffs. Really? And uh, I was worried. I don't know if you saw the game, but it was it was your heart was in your throat. I mean, it was back and forth, and it could go either way, and it was down to the wire. And um, I just kept thinking, she should not be up this late. She should not be getting this, you know, getting her getting her pulse rate up like this. Mm-hmm. So for that reason alone, I'm very glad that, uh, you know, they took care of business. 
First ever title for Denver. Did you see um, they had a uh, camera in Serbia where Jokic is from? No, I did not. And people were watching the game. Now, whenever they would flash to that shot, apparently they don't have sports bars in Serbia. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Because these people looked like they were in like like a cafeteria or like a... Maybe like a library or a classroom or something. Yeah. It was very joyless. <laughs> I know it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, but it looked very obligatory. Yeah. You know, I know they're very proud of them. They're very excited. But somebody needs to get like a – somebody get a get a Twin Peaks or a Hooters over there to Serbia because uh, mm-hmm. there was no way to watch a game. There were no – like there were no suds. There were no wings. There were no potato skins. It just looked very grim. I thought the same thing when the Dallas Mavericks won the title in 2011 against the Heat, coincidentally against the Heat, and they would show mm. pics of his fans in Germany. Mm. And it just it just didn't have that Dave yeah. and Buster's feel no. to it. No, it didn't, uh, <laughs> it just didn't, didn't have it going work. on. There's a, all I'm no. saying is there's an opportunity there if somebody's a businessman <laughs> yeah. or woman. All right, 210-599-5555. Well, this is interesting. I didn't want to let this go in the, in the tumult of, of events today. I did not want to let this go. After the um, reports, and we talked about it on the show, of uh, the behavior on the White House lawn for their Pride event, The White House is now denouncing, condemning some of the people they invited to their Pride event because some of them were topless and there were children. And I realize that we're not supposed to care about that. It's 2023, drag queen story hour, baby. But the White House put out a statement that said, in part, this behavior is inappropriate and disrespectful for any event at the White House. It is not reflective of the event we hosted to celebrate LGBTQI plus families or the other hundreds of guests who were in attendance. Individuals in the video will not be invited to future events. So the most pride-centric White House in history is now disinviting the trans activists. The world has gone mad. What, what can you count on anymore? If you can't count on Joe Biden to be truthful and loyal to the rainbow, what can you count on? I'm telling you, I'm shocked by this. What a betrayal. Here's trans activist Rose Montoya, the one who had her hands over his hands, its hands, their hands, uh, over their chest. Listen to this. Conservatives are trying to use the video of me topless at the White House to try to call the community groomers, etc. And I would just like to say that, first of all, going topless in Washington, D.C. is legal. And I fully support the movement in freeing the nipple because why is my chest now deemed inappropriate or illegal when I show it off? However, before coming out as trans, it was not. All you're doing is affirming that I am a woman. All you're doing mm. is saying right, so that... Hold on, hold on. You see, the, you see the argument here? Rose Montoya is a guy who now identifies as a woman and is saying, well, I have a guy chest. What's the big deal? Do you, you realize how crazy that is? How mixed up you'd have to be? How how confused is Rose Montoya to even say that? My defense, I'm a woman, but my chest is male. All right, continue. 
all you're doing is affirming that I am a woman. Mm. All you're doing is saying that trans women are women because for some reason, people some like reason. to sexualize mm. women's bodies and say mm. that they are inappropriate. Mm. My trans masculine friends. Hold on. So when women, actual women, wear clothes, does that mean they're ashamed of their bodies? Do, do we have a woman we can ask that question to? When you put on clothes in the morning, when you pick out what you're going to wear for the day, is that out of a sense of shame in your breasts? Like you should, you should really just let it all show? That's why I say trans women are the worst kind of women. I mean, they're, they're, just, they're, they're terrible at it. They're not good at being women. Uh, they get every bit of it wrong. This guy is so confused. And so he's upset at conservatives, but it's Joe Biden's White House, not a conservative to be found, that is saying he is no longer welcome there. Then I saw a story. Uh, there are bomb threats coming into Target stores around the country. But the bomb threats have been received... Um, Five different states, I don't know how many total stores. The threats accuse Target of betraying the LGBTQ community. Oh, here are the states. Louisiana, Oklahoma, New York, New Hampshire, and Vermont. No bombs were found. Previous threats had been made in Ohio and Utah. One message said, you've betrayed the LGBTQ community, saying this to Target. You are pathetic cowards who bowed to the wishes of far-right extremists who want to exterminate us. We will not tolerate intolerance nor indifference. That is why we placed a bomb in each of your locations. Evacuate now. Look, I don't know who did this. I, don't, I mean, you can, you can claim to be anybody when you phone in a bomb threat. Um, but... This is being reported as if it shows how dangerous the uh, consumer response was to the pride promotion of Target. So because you are offended or stopped going to Target or maybe said something to your store manager like, hey, I don't think that should be there, you are the problem. But the real danger, it seems to me, was a brand and a business that caters to American families deciding to go down this road in the first place. I don't condone threats. I don't condone violence. But I, I will insist till my dying breath, when you start the culture war, you don't get to complain about the, the battlefield conditions. This whole thing has pretty much jumped the shark. I was talking about this the other day, and I, I'm going out on a limb saying this because I'm not an, a, a, a spokesman for the gay community. I don't have any standing. I don't have any right. But I suspect strongly, can't prove it, I can only go anecdotally on the people I do know and the people I do talk to. And I'm not going to start lining them up and putting them on the show to, to, to you know, affirm what I'm saying. But I think I'm right about this. I, I don't think most gay people are, are, are good with any of this. I think they're embarrassed by it. I don't think it's what they want. 
Um, I, I don't think they want drag queen story hour or kids being involved in drag or any of that. I don't think most gay people go to drag or have anything to do with it. It's it, You're talking about a really small group of people who are claiming their plight and their cause is the cause of all the people that may be or are any of the alphabet letters. This whole thing has, I mean, I mean, Pride Month happens every year. Have you ever heard so much about it as you're hearing this year? I never have. June seems like it's been seven weeks long, and we're only, what, 13 days into it. It's the longest month ever. We're not even halfway through this Pride Month. can barely take any more. I don't think they take pride in what, what is being labeled as pride events and pride gestures. I don't think that's what people want. I even know, I'll go further. I don't even think this is what most Democrats want. Now, there are, there are far-left people that, that are loving this and have a use for this, but I'm just going to tell you, I, I think a lot of the people who are supposedly represented by all of this are not, in fact, represented by it at all. And you can say, well, how do you know that? I can't prove it. And you can say, well, then why aren't they speaking up? Well, where would they go to do that? Like, somebody's not going to call a talk show and say, hey, um, I just want to say publicly that I'm a gay person and I'm really, really upset and offended by, or I'm not represented by, or this stuff is not how I feel about kids and what they should be taught. You're not going to do that. You're not going to look for trouble. And I understand that. But I'm telling you, I don't think this is where we're at. I think this is a tiny group of people that have had more success and have inveigled themselves into more places and to more influence than they probably ever dreamed they would have. I'm not saying it isn't coordinated and sophisticated and what have you. I'm just saying I think they've gone a lot further than they even they thought they would. And they're able to do it because the people they claim to represent are quiet. Quietly horrified. Join the show at 210-599-5555. You can also uh, shoot me an email, jack at ktsa.com. This was a great column by Glenn Reynolds, the uh, guy that does instapundit.com. Uh, headline, Greens want electric cars, but not the things required to run them. Why is it that Greens want everyone to drive electric cars, but don't want people to have electricity? <laughs> That's really a good question. I mean, we've kind of been talking about that, but I, I never put it that succinctly. They want all the cars to be electric, but they don't want to generate more electricity. They don't even like the way we generate what we have now, which is not enough, were we to realize their vehicular goals. I noted in these pages how the people who want everyone to have an electric car in the garage have also been pursuing policies that, per the North American Electric Reliability Corporation's latest report, are likely to result in rolling blackouts this summer, he writes. Fossil and nuclear plants are being taken offline while the replacement with renewables like wind and solar lags and often fail to produce power when it's most needed. Interesting. Nothing is improved on that front, but the thing about electric cars is they don't just need electricity, they also need batteries to store it in and electric motors. That's awkward because the cars and batteries require lots of copper and other metals and rare earth minerals that come mostly from China and Africa, where they're often produced by child or slave labor. Hmm. Hard to feel good about that electric car when you think about child labor. Or maybe it isn't. I don't know. I would think it would be. 
Uh, here's more from Glenn Reynolds. Norway has found vast resources of metals and rare earths off the sea, uh, on the seabed off its coast and has started preparations to mine them in an underwater region roughly the size of Germany. Um, so you would think that would be good news, right? We would be all celebrating the fact that Norway, a friendly country, has um, discovered the stuff that we need to produce electric car batteries and wind turbines and all that, coming from a NATO country, not People's Republic of China. But no, environmentalists are saying no to Norway's plans to mine for those minerals. So his question is, if all the people who say we need electric cars are also against all the things, both the generation of electricity and the production of materials needed to make them happen. What are we supposed to think? Reynolds says, you're not being realistic and sensible, and your policy proposals or demands should be ignored and even mocked. Well, you know my tinfoil hat theory about this. I mean, Glenn Reynolds is way smarter than me, so I, I defer to him. But my theory is they're not, these people aren't stupid or crazy. They just don't want you to have a car. They're not interested in taking the gasoline-powered cars off the road. They're interested in there being far fewer cars on the road. Like, all right, Jack, yes, we've heard you say this before. We know, we know, it's your theory. It's what it looks like. Um, one of the things that's interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine over the weekend. I had a, I had a friend in from Houston, and I'll just digress here for a minute. He's, he's a very smart guy. He's a doctor, but he's very apolitical. Like, he doesn't, doesn't have really political opinions or think that way. He, he keeps up with the news, but not... Not in a ideological way. And we were talking about this very thing, the contradiction of mandating electric cars while they're hard to produce in large numbers, they're very expensive, they're not actually green when you look at the carbon footprint required to mine stuff and manufacture them. Um... And we were talking about how probably a lot of climate alarmism is, is a grift. In other words, it's people making money, not saving the planet. And if you wanted to make a lot of money and you had kind of a grifty, grubby way of doing it, you'd have to put a facade on it that looked good, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't just say, I've got a really cool idea to rake in money from rubes. You'd say, I'm saving the planet. I care. Your logo would be like a little clover, a little leaf, right? Okay. So we were talking about all this, and um, I was surprised that he agreed with me, because, again, he's not a very political guy. But I was saying, you know, it's always the middle-income people that have to cope. Um, the, they don't really care about um, people that work for a living, people that pay their bills, people that follow the rules, people that aren't, you know, I mean, we'd all like to be rich, but people that aren't trying to be rich, people that are just trying to live a good life, raise their kids, have a nice backyard, you know, maybe take a vacation once a year. Politicians always talk about the rich and they always talk about the poor. The rich they want to soak and, you know, pillage. And it seems very envious, like, you know, just jealousy. But, of course, it's not just that, because, remember, the 
politicians are friends with the rich. They get donations from the rich. They're palling around with the rich. So when they act like they're going to tax the rich and they're at war with the rich and no one should be a billionaire, just remember that all the politicians that say that have friends who are billionaires. Every one of them. Yes, even Bernie. And then they talk about the poor. The poor, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor. But it's just talk. Because the things they do provably keep poor people poor. And green energy is a good example of that. That's going to lead to the starvation and privation of poor people in places like South America and Africa. So when you get right down to it, the one group of people who don't even get talked about, much less taken care of, are you and me. The, the middle, I don't want to say middle class, I want to say middle income people. So Glenn Reynolds' point, to come back to his column, is let's not take these people seriously because they're against contradictory things. They're, 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 they're trying to mandate electric cars, but they're against the generation of more electricity. So his point is, th- this is, this is a bunch of clowns. Well, maybe so, and I, and I hope he's right. I just hope it's not that they're actually up to something which will involve a lot more control, a lot less freedom with cars and the elimination or reduction of privately owned cars being the, the way you get a lot less freedom. I mean, just think about, think about your life. Think about the way you move around and the choices you make and how you live and how you work and where you go and when you go and all the differences that would be entailed if the transportation of your person was a function of government, not a function of that thing you're making payments on out in the driveway. Just, just something to think about. It's not really about electric versus gas. It's about cars versus mass transit. We're joined by Professor William Jacobson, professor of law at Cornell and the man behind LegalInsurrection.com, which is an everyday read for us and I highly recommend. And, uh, of course, we're talking about the Trump indictments in Florida today. Professor, thank you for coming on, giving us a few minutes of your time. Thank you for having me on. I, I know we've talked before about some of the uh, anomalies of this this whole thing, um, but I, I wanted to kind of get your, your uh, thoughts about the sheer quantity of the charges the way in which they are trying to suggest that there is a massive amount of document hoarding here, when in reality, when you read the the indictment, they're really talking about uh, a quantity of documents that probably wouldn't even fill one box, much less, you know, a whole wall of boxes, right? That's right. I mean, this was clearly uh, an indictment crafted with public relations in mind because they knew that there would be, you know, as there is round-the-clock coverage and outrage and from the Trump camp, et cetera. So they tried to put a lot in there, and they tried to, in my view, make it seem more substantial than it is. That's not saying it's not substantial, it's not real, this is not a hoax, et cetera. But, you know, piling on the charges, separate charge per document, and a lot of the allegations in there are, raises more questions than answers you know trump made a comment maybe we shouldn't play ball with them or maybe we you know maybe we shouldn't cooperate well okay is that really obstruction of justice to ask that question to your lawyer what was the lawyer's response 
So mm. there's a lot in there that I think was crafted to with uh, the media in mind. Uh, that doesn't mean, again, that there aren't serious charges. There are, mm. but I think they tried a shock and awe approach to this. When I hear you say that, and, and, and others have said it as well. The word I keep thinking of is overreach. Is it possible that they have, uh, when they go to, you know, seat a jury, that they've overreached, that they've made this whole thing, especially when it plays against the backdrop of what's going on with uh, Biden and Burisma, and that story is changing by the hour, Um is it possible that they've gone too far and, and people are going to not even look past the, the, the theatrics of it? Well, it depends, you know, what the judge will allow the defense to argue. And usually defense has, you know, pretty good latitude to make arguments. You know, the one thing that jumps out at me here is the one thing that's not alleged is that any of these documents or any of these boxes actually fell into hostile hands. Okay. Mm. They have photographs. They were in the storage room and one of them tipped over. Uh, they were on stage for some period of time boxes. Um, but never in this is it said that, you know, actually the documents got into the hands or were seen by hostile forces. There's no actual claim of damage to our national security. What they're claiming is he put at risk damage to mm. our national security. And so, you know, that might be a legal nuance that the defense can argue. Uh, as to, you know, whether these documents really posed the threat that the government says they posed mm. merely because they had some classification markings on them. So I think that that's, you know, I think there is an overreach here. But that said, it's still significant charges. Are the, would you say the most serious or significant charges are the um, espionage charges? And, and if so... Um, is it a requirement of proving espionage that you prove harm was done or uh, an, an enemy, you know, was informed or helped? In other words, you have to show that? No, it's not an element of the crime, but the point is they do have to prove that these were documents were, you know, risk, they were put at risk that they w it would be disclosed. I mean, that is in the wording of the statute, not the okay. word risk, but that's the concept. And so the fact that it never actually happened, I think, might be relevant. The judge is going to have to rule on that. The fact mm. that, you know, however they were kept, they, it never actually got disclosed. Uh, and so, you know, that's, I think, something, whether they can get that in or not. And then there's just the whole issue of, I mean, what kind of juror are you going to get who hasn't heard about this, who mm. hasn't seen Trump on, t on TV complaining about the witch hunt? Um, which it has been, okay, whether the char these charges are valid or not, it has been a witch hunt. Mm. It has been a seven-year effort to get Donald Trump on anything they could find. I, I, think the I think, you know, the government runs a real risk here of what's called jury nullification, that mm. there will be some secret Trump supporters on that jury, and there's no way they're going to convict him. So, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I think this whole concept of overreach, of targeting him, uh, of no real damage from this, that it's all theoretical, uh, may not be strictly legally relevant, but if the defense is allowed to bring those things in, that could sway a jury. Do you read anything into the uh, other uh, man who was indicted, Walt Nada, who's the president's uh, sort of body man or valet? He apparently handled boxes and moved boxes and 
and may may have handled these documents. And I wondered if you thought maybe they were hoping to flip him or turn him against the former president? Oh, I think no doubt about that. I mean, they're not engaging in this effort to send Walt Nada to jail. I mean, they will if they, if they, if they need to, but that's not why this whole thing was brought. It's to get Donald Trump. And that tells me that they felt the need to name him, that they may not have enough to convict. They may have enough to indict, but in the moving of Walt Nada's important as to the moving of boxes, the obstruction of justice. They're going to have to prove Donald Trump's involvement in that. They're going to have to prove that he instructed the boxes to be moved, and he knew that there was information in those boxes that were called for by the subpoena. Because if he had just moved other boxes that were not, did not contain documents relevant to the subpoena, so what? That's not obstruction. So I think they may need Walt Nada to make that link uh, to obstruction of justice that they may not have enough right now. And so, of course, they want to flip him. They want him to take the stand mm. and they want him to point the finger at the defendant at the defense table and say, he told me to do it. And here's why he told me to do it. Mm. Follow him at LegalInsurrection.com. Professor William Jacobson. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. We appreciate it. Great. Take care. We're live right now on KTSA and also available as a podcast. It's kind of weird, you know, you're just uh, walking around doing errands, sleeping in my bed, realizing that somewhere the show is on. I'm doing the show somewhere. But I mean, but that's a good thing, right? If this is not a convenient time for you to listen in the afternoon, it's like the worst time of day for you to be listening, but you want to check up, check in. You can get whole episodes of this show on demand anywhere, anytime, either at KTSA.com or look for The Jack Riccardi Show anywhere you get your podcasts. I have had people ask me, uh, gee, why aren't we uh, hearing the Jack Chat line? Where are the Jack Chat calls? Well, we're, I, I'm not getting any. So uh, if I don't have them, I don't play them, obviously. But if you do want to chime in when you're listening to the podcast... You're not out of luck because the show's no longer live and, you know, you missed out. You can just call the Jack Chat line, 210-599-5550. It prompts you to leave your first name, your city or town, and your and your comment, and then we play those back. And that's the Jack Chat line. That's it. That's how it works. Very simple. 210-599-5550 for that. That's open all the time. It's open now. It's open during the show and every other hour as well. And I, I, I think it's uh, a good idea. I mean, maybe not. Maybe we'll discontinue it. But I think we need something for people that are listening to the podcast so that they can join in and be a part of it uh, if they're not able to call in live. So we were talking about solar power a minute ago. Um, I did not know this till today. Maybe you knew this. Did you know that solar panels don't work as well when it's extremely hot? You know, we're often dinged by our so-called overlords because we're not converting as fast as they want us to or think we should. We're not embracing the new green economy and uh, giving up our central air and our gas stoves with the enthusiasm they would expect from us. We apparently don't love America or the planet enough for that. But I was reading this article. It was actually from um, the UK. And it was the first time I had ever heard, and then I Googled it to find out more. Solar panels 
in extreme heat start to lose I mean it's it's a fractional amount but they start to lose their efficiency so the the solar grid is already pretty fragile right like the smoke from the Canadian forest fires has wrought havoc with solar energy generation in the Northeast you never know when something like that's gonna happen obviously cloudy days but I, I did not know I would not have even guessed and they certainly didn't tell us this in any of the fancy handouts that we've been getting over the years about solar but high temperatures reduce the amount of energy generated from solar panels for example where they are having um, unusually, extraordinarily hot weather right now in the UK, some solar panels have lost about a twenty about twenty percent of their efficiency, um, and it's just a efficiency or science kind of thing. But apparently, at a certain point, if they get to a certain temperature these panels start to become less efficient. In fact, for every degree above 77 Fahrenheit, 25 Celsius, a solar panel starts to decline in efficiency by about 0.3 or 0.4%. So imagine a place like San Antonio, where for months at a time, there is not a single day below 77. I mean, tonight's expected low is 76. It doesn't mean the solar panels aren't working at all. It means they're not working as well. And the more dependent we are on them, the more that difference would be felt, would be appreciated. Besides which, we don't exactly have a lot of margin of error to begin with, as you know. I mean, this, this whole notion of renewable energy is at the moment barely covering our needs, barely, uh, you know, keeping up with changing conditions. But I thought that was very interesting, and I had never heard that before. And I, I, I wouldn't expect, look, I wouldn't expect people in the solar panel business to necessarily tell me that, you know. I would definitely think that people making public policy would at least be honest about it. And if they're not telling us that, they're not being honest about that, what else are they not being honest about? Well, I know you'll be happy to know, uh, Christian, that Dr. Deep is back with us. Okay. <laughs> Did you not know he was gone? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, Professor Joseph DeTuri at the University of South Florida uh, came up for air on Saturday after spending 100 days living underwater. Really? He now has the Guinness Book of World Record uh, record for the longest continuous amount of time for human beings spent in a um, uh, underwater environment. So he was in like a like capsule or something, or is his fingers mm -hmm. really? Well, he was really... holding his breath. No, he was um, <laughs> holding his. Breath. He was in a uh, a vessel that kept the inside pressure about the same as the surface. Okay. Um, and the project was to learn more about how the human body and mind respond to extended exposure. And uh, so three months, nine days, he was underwater. He did daily experiments, monitored his body, uh, taught his courses uh, with a, uh, you know, video link. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, the best part, 
completely missed the Bud Light story. Just <laughs> never heard anything, didn't know anything about it. Never had to hear from Dylan Mulvaney. I mean, sign me up. I was just going to say. I want to go next. It just seems like that project might have been really boring, but when you mm. close with that little factoid at the end, yeah. maybe yeah. I want to go underwater for a bit. Doesn't it sound, suddenly it sounds pretty good, right? Yeah, it does. Didn't, uh, wasn't it Aaron Rodgers that spent four days in a isolation tank or something to make his decision about going to the Jets? So Everybody's <laughs> doing right. that now. Yeah. Everybody's, the way the world is right now, the new luxury isn't like uh, a yacht or a resort. It's just cutting yourself off from every sensory experience all i'm going to say is i wouldn't have to go into solitude to try to decide where mm. i'm going to go no. make millions of dollars yeah no i wouldn't Pretty need, easy. I, I wouldn't need too much time on that either i no. could i could get back to you in a couple of minutes on that <laughs> yeah. all right well you have a good night sir we're going to have the results on the uh, jr poll coming up later in the hour uh presented by river city oral surgery do you still expect this is our question on the poll do you still expect with the events of today uh that the 2024 election will be Trump versus Biden. Uh, and you can vote in the JR poll at 210-599-5555, or you can get the JR poll at ktsa.com. Obviously, uh, President, uh, former President Donald Trump was indicted today in Miami, um, the 45th president and now the first president ever to be indicted, uh, told his uh, followers and supporters in Miami to stay peaceful, uh, we need strength in our country right now. Uh, do what you have to do, but do it and protest peacefully. I, I, um, I'm glad he said that, but I was really thinking about today. Obviously, I was doing what I was doing today, and I had the TV on and uh, mostly muted, and I kept looking at the pictures. All the, all the channels had their cameras aimed at the uh, sidewalks and the streets around that courthouse, and there were all these people with Trump flags and American flags and signs. And it was really a cross-section. It was, it was all different ages, and it was men and women. And um, I was thinking about those people today. I was actually thinking about them more than about Donald Trump. I, I, think, we, I think we worry too much about Donald Trump. I think Donald, I think Donald Trump will be fine. But those, those are good people. You know what I mean? I, whether I agree with them about everything or they agree with me about anything, it doesn't matter. I think those are people that really love more than just Donald Trump. I think they love the country. I think for them to be out on the sidewalk, and it's probably 90 degrees down there, and uh, you know they're broiling in the sun, and they're standing around with the flags and the signs and stuff, it tells me two things. It tells me that they care, and it also tells me that they, they sense that something is off, something is wrong. And I don't just mean... The, the the document charges against Trump. I, I really think people like that recognize that there is more wrong than just the persecution of or the witch hunt of this guy. The, the witch hunt is a symptom of what's wrong, but it isn't the whole thing. I mean, if that was the only thing wrong in our country, it would be serious, but there's way more than that. And as I was thinking about it and watching these people, I was reflecting on a book I just read recently called The True Believer. The True Believer was a sensation when it came out in 1951. It was written by a man named Eric Hoffer, who was a longshoreman. This is a guy that worked for a few bucks a day on the uh, docks in San Francisco. 
but he was also a philosopher. And in the course of his life, and you can Google him if you've never heard of Eric Hoffer. He was on 60 Minutes, and he, he, he is an acclaimed philosopher, but he always lived a very simple life. He was a working man. He wasn't in an ivory tower at a university somewhere. So he just lived a simple life, worked for his pay, took his pay home, and wrote. In his, in his spare time, every moment he had, he wrote and scribbled, and he turned out this book called The True Believer. It's a great read. The subject of the book is mass movements. And he's talking about all of them, from organized religion to communism, everything. Uh, Hitler, Stalin, everything. And what he's saying is, and it was very controversial and it offended some people when he said it, but he said, the people that join mass movements are looking for purpose, they want to make a difference, but they are afraid or they feel impotent by themselves on their own. Now, you and I know that's not actually true. We, we know one person can make a difference. We know our actions can make a difference. But, but he said people that are susceptible to mass movements believe that they can't do anything or they aren't sure they can do anything alone they gravitate toward other like-minded people. They look for leadership. They look for someone to tell them what to do, to give their frustration focus. Hitler understood this. He came to power at a time when there were a lot of young people in his country who were unemployed and bitter and alienated and disillusioned by the government and, and, and betrayed by the Versailles Peace Treaty at the end of World War I. And Hitler recognized all of this in, a, in an act of demonic brilliance that you could take all these young people and if you just made them feel important and gave them a focus and gave them an enemy, you could marshal them into this incredible power that changed the world. Stalin understood it. Every mass movement, Hoffer says, has these same elements, whether it's something we think is good or bad, whether we think it's a good movement for, the, for, the, for good or a movement for evil, they all have this element. And so I looked at those people on the sidewalk and I thought, they need something to do. Because Donald Trump doesn't need them on the sidewalk, other than maybe his ego. And being on the sidewalk isn't going to change what happens in that courtroom one iota, just as being at the Capitol on January 6th was never going to change what happened inside that congressional chamber. It never was going to matter. And so I'd like to say this, and, and you can agree or disagree. I, I, I get what Trump is up against. I get how wrong it is. I, I appreciate the historical figure that he is. There wouldn't be such a witch hunt against him if he wasn't somebody that the establishment is genuinely worried about. But those people need a leader. And they need someone to tell them what they can do, what action they can take, that will help this country, which I think they love. Because I saw a lot of American flags in that crowd, not just Trump flags. The media will tell you they're just cult members. And like, this, is what, this is what Hillary said on the uh, podcast Pod Save America about the people she saw on television. Take a listen to this. 
it seems likely right now that he will end up the nominee. I mean, something can happen between now and when they start actually voting in the primary, but the Republican rules, as you know, favor winner take all. So the more people who get in against him, his chances actually go up. And then the response that we've seen in polling from Republicans um, suggests that they're going to stick with him, that it's more of a cult than a political party at this mm. point, and they're going to stick with their leader. What do you think of that? So she's saying these Republicans are just, just cult members. Um, I think they're more than that. I, uh, I don't agree with them on everything, but I think they're more than that. And I wish somebody would give them a job to do. I wish somebody would say to them, go back to your state, go to your state capitol, uh, fight for fair elections, fight to roll back election rules to the pre-2020 rules we had that are by law that make elections fairer and more trustworthy. Get involved at the local level. Run for office. Find good people to run for office. We need them. There still aren't enough people with our mindset getting into politics, going to meetings, getting into organizing. You know, the left is still way better at that. They still have more bodies on the ground for that. We need to catch up. That's what I would think a leader would say to the people on the sidewalk. Because they can't do anything for him there. This is now in the hands of the judicial system, such as it is, whatever you think of that. And there is so much we're facing in this country. What's, what's happening to our children, what's happening to education, what's happening to the culture, what's happening to really Western civilization, our rights. What's happening to a great nation that is being turned into a second or third rate power and a banana republic. And I just I look at those people outside that courthouse, and I think those are good people that need to be in the fight. They don't need to be where they are. They're not, it's not, I mean, they're, they have every right to be there. I'm not knocking them. I'm not saying round them up and take them up. I'm just saying it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't help. And if you have a movement, use it for good. Uh, here, the Pat Sajak has uh, announced he's retiring from Wheel of Fortune. Pat, Shaj- Pat Sajak um, has been hosting Wheel of Fortune for 41 seasons. And a couple of years ago, passed the late Bob Barker for the record of being the longest-running uh, game show host on a single show. I, I say late Bob Barker. Is Bob Barker still alive? Maybe he is. I don't know. I shouldn't say that. Um, in a uh, tweet, Sajak said, It's been a wonderful ride. Time has come. I've decided that our 41st season, which begins in September, will be my last. So you've got a long way to go. And uh, he'll be wrapping it up next year. Started hosting the show in 1981. The original host back in 1975 was Chuck Woolery. Pat Sajak is is good at that. I think he's good on Wheel of Fortune. Who was the best game show host you ever saw? Because there were people, I think, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, game show host used to be like a profession, like there were guys that hosted several of them. 
sometimes more than one at a time, and um, or maybe several over a career. And it was like a, it was almost like an extension of vaudeville and Broadway and a little bit of you know the early days of live TV, and you had to have maybe a comedic or maybe a disc jockey background. I mean, Johnny Carson was a disc jockey who became a game show host. That's how he got into television. Um, who's the best game show host you've ever, you've ever seen, ever watched your favorite that you've ever watched? Um, I think Bob Barker is kind of, to me, the gold standard. And he's still pretty alive sure, though. Pretty sure he's still alive, right? Yes, yeah, he is. I think he is. So when I said late, I just meant he was late for lunch today. He was supposed to be at lunch at 1230 and he didn't get there till one. That's what I meant. Um, there was something about Bob Barker, and um, I, I mean, he did more than one show, but the one he was best known for was The Price is Right. Maybe it was just that format or the the, the setup, but he just had a great um, way about him. I like that Bob Barker wasn't corny. Like, he was nice to people, but he wasn't, like, hugging them and pretending they were best friends. You know, he, he kept a little bit of... There was a little bit of reserve, right? There was a little bit of distance. He wasn't like a politician slapping him on the back. And, you know, some of these guys, I think, overdo it. I won't name names, but some of these guys are a little too slap happy. Uh, You know who else I liked was Gene Rayburn. Do you remember Gene Rayburn, Don, on Match Game? And he did a bunch of other shows, too. But um, when he hosted Match Game... I was a kid watching this show. It was really edgy because mm-hmm. you know they'd ask those questions, and the celebrity panel would have to write the answers on those cards. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was because they didn't say the stuff; they could just write it on a card. It was kind of filthy, right? No, there was many sexual innuendos <laughs> on that show. <laughs> it I, absolutely, like, yeah. It was like they were getting away with something. I mean, but they didn't say it; they nope. just wrote it, and they just and you'd have this, you know, little cutie pie actress, you know, just as perfect as can be with her little blonde bangs and she'd hold up her little card and it would be dirty <laughs> what you know christy mcnichol even knew that word but do you do you remember when you watch the reruns of of that program gene rayburn was kind of frisky with his hands as well he you was know, a little he's, handsy he's a very touchy-feely guy Well, you got to remember, Don, this was show business before, like, you know, (laughs) the Me Too movement and what have you and so forth. Uh, I I loved Peter Marshall on um, on uh, Hollywood Squares. Although the the guy that really made Hollywood Squares was Paul Lynn. Um, I loved uh, is Steve Harvey still doing? um, Yes. Family Feud. Is is that a current show or because I've seen. Like clips of it on on YouTube, but I, I don't know if it's still on. Is it on as a regular show? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it is okay. Yes, he is hilarious. His facial reactions to the things people say, I don't think there's anybody better. He can say a paragraph with his eyebrows. So yeah, Bob Barker, Gene Rayburn, Chuck Woolery is fantastic. Steve Harvey, Wayne Brady is um, pretty good at. Wayne show. Brady is mm-hmm. pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saying Wayne Brady is a strong possibility uh, for for replacing Pat Sajak. I don't know. They haven't named anybody officially yet. I'm sure they'll drag that out like they did with with uh, Jeopardy. Hopefully, they'll do a better job of it than they did with Jeopardy. Jeopardy's a train wreck, obviously. But uh, 
Uh, who do you like in the game show world? 210-599-5555. Jim's on the radio. Hi, Jim. Hey, Jack. How are you today? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. I liked Richard Dawson on Family Feud. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, he was a revelation on that show because I had grown up watching him on um, on Hogan's Heroes. It was weird yep. to see him like all dressed up in a suit and tie, and it was like a whole other side of him, right? Yep, it sure was. And I'm going to. And he had that innuendo here. thing, right, where he could kind of, you know, step right up to the line. Yep, that's for sure. I'm going to date myself here. I I remember the original host of Jeopardy was a guy by the name of Art Fleming. I remember Art Fleming. He was a see. He was the guy I was talking about where his. He had hosted a bunch of different shows. That was his profession. That was like his specialty. Yes. He was and back then, that could be your father. career. You could just do that. Yeah. He was actually a patient of my father's. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. I grew up in New York. Yep. What, what, now, I'm just curious, during the time that he was on television or later on? Uh, during the time he was on television. Wow. Any insights? Was he a yeah. nice guy? Was he the same way on oh, off the air? Very, he was a very nice guy. As a matter of fact, he was the grand marshal of the bicentennial parade in the town I grew up in, in, in Roslyn, New York. How about that? Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of him right here. Art Fleming um, had been an actor uh, and did a number of game shows, most famously, as you say, Jeopardy, when it started uh, in 1964. Very good. Great memory. Jim, thank you. Uh, 210-599-5555. Who's your favorite or greatest all-time game show host? A lot of actors took a turn at it. John Davidson, Burt Convey, uh, Betty White hosted game shows uh, off and on during her uh, career. Of course, she did everything. I think she was actually the uh, 39th president of the United States at one point, too. Not sure, but I think so. Uh, Russell is next on the Jack Riccardi Show. Russell, good afternoon. Hello, Jack. Oh, my gosh. Let's make a deal with Marty Hall. <laughs> that show was a kick. I mean, he always had stuff in his pockets, right? He always had the prizes in his oh, pockets. Remember that? And do, the Carol Merrill, that's who was always behind box number one. So mm. you got to see behind the curtain, behind the box. I love that show. Yeah. Imagine the life. I know. Well, I'm right there with you because I remember it, too. But imagine what must have gone on behind the scenes back in the day. You had all those beautiful women, all that testosterone, no HR department. Good grief, right? I'm too old to think about things like that. Yeah, I know. you got to watch your blood pressure. All right, Russell, thank you. Uh, who's your favorite all-time game show host? Maybe it's somebody current like Drew Carey. Maybe it's somebody from yesteryear. Maybe you liked Dick Clark or Regis Philbin or... Alex Trebek was great. I mean, I think he'd be in, if there was a Hall of Fame, he'd be in it, right? 210-599-5555. Pat Sajak is going to retire as the host of Wheel of Fortune next year. Who was the all-time greatest or your all-time favorite game show host? I feel like even that term may be disappearing because game shows are kind of 
morphing with reality shows, and a lot of times the person hosting it is just some celebrity, and I, and I get that. But at one time, when game shows were more of a staple of television, game show host was, was a profession. I mean, it was your specialty. That was the thing you did. It's funny how a lot of them started out as radio guys or as TV weathermen, like David Letterman was a TV weatherman, Pat Sajak was a TV A number of them started that way, I guess because you kind of, when you present the weather, you kind of joke around or whatever, and you have a certain looseness that lends itself to the... Uh, I, I think no matter how much producing and pre- pre- preparation there is on a TV game show, it's one of those broadcasting jobs that really requires you to be quick on your feet. You know, they can't put everything on a cue card, and uh, and people throw you curves. And so the the best ones to me are the ones that move it along and and uh, are easy to listen to, but also have a great quick wit. Um, Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Peggy is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Peggy. Hi. Um, not necessarily my favorite, but Alan Ludden from Password, who he and Betty White were married. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he did Password for a long time. I remember that. Yeah. And another one that just came to mind, but I can't remember what show he was on, was Bill Cullen. Yep. Well, now, Bill Cullen, I think, did a number of them. I know he did The Price is Right for a while, um, and I think he did some other... I'm pretty sure he did some other uh, shows. I remember as a kid, just he'd kind of pop up all over the place and um, was probably on... He was. I know he was on I've Got a Secret. He was on To Tell the Truth. Do you remember To Tell the Truth? Maybe that's the one I'm thinking about. I couldn't remember what, I, what he was on. Um, yeah. I'm probably young then. I'm old now, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, we all are, Peggy. I mean, don't... You're not the only one, you know? All right, well, good one. Thank you. Alan Ludden and Bill Cullen are two legends in, in the talk show business. Those are great choices. Uh, 210-599-5555. Who do you like? Who's a favorite? Um, I think that uh, another guy I liked, and I can't remember what the show was, I just remember I enjoyed watching him, was Wink Martindale. And I believe Wink Martindale was also a disc jockey. When he got started, I mean, he he even had. I'm pretty sure he even had like a hit record at one point. I was Didn't just, he, Don? You yeah, that, I right? was just about to uh, mention that. That I think I did like a country, yeah, some, like a country song some, or something. No, I think it was a rock song back in the a early rock '60s. Song? Yeah, I believe so. Wink, wink. Oh, what a great down. name is that? Why didn't I? Why didn't I start out with a name like that? Who knows where I would have gone? Wink Martindale, host of shows including Tic Tac Doe, Gambit. High Rollers. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember any of those, but I I just remember seeing him on TV. I must have watched something that he did. Um, but yeah, two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. There are shows that have been around so long that many people hosted them, like Jeopardy and uh, Wheel of Fortune. Um, uh, Groucho Marx was a game show host at one time, um, and most famously uh, hosted a show called You Bet Your Life which was based on a catchphrase of his, but has since gone on to be a show hosted by other people. I think it's still on, in fact. Uh, 210-599-5555. Since we're talking about Pat Sajak, who's your all-time favorite? Albert is next on the radio. Hi, Albert. Nope, no Albert. Okay. Oh, (laughs) you got to go faster. Uh, Sorry about that, Albert. Call me back. Uh, Tom is on the radio. Hi, Tom. 
Hey, Jack, I'm going to have to go with uh, Richard Dawson on the original Family Feud. Yeah, yeah. He was fantastic. I just liked, Did, yeah, I liked how smooth he was. Well, not only that, but he, he was very smooth and he was very, um, like, very quick-witted. I mean, he had these comebacks that would leave you rolling, right? Right, totally, totally, yeah. It was kind of like picking up where he left off in match game. Was he on match game? I didn't know that. Well, no, he wasn't the host, but he was a, he was usually the uh, on on the bottom tier. Oh, one of the panelists. Uh, okay. Oh, all right. Yeah, 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 but he but he was he was that way there too. But yeah, on on Family Feud, I mean, he was almost like a member of the Rat Pack or something out there. He was just mm-hmm. so kind of mm-hmm. suave. Yeah. Very good. That's, that's a that's a great comparison. That's exactly what he had that Rat Pack thing. Now that you mention it, Tom makes a good point. A lot of these shows. The the stars were not just the hosts. The stars were also um, the people that were on the panel or, you know, the celebrity guests. I mean, again, Hollywood Squares, you'd have nine celebrities sitting in like a tic-tac-toe formation. Paul Lynn was in the middle. But you had all these other people that, as kids, I didn't, I don't think we really even knew who all of them were. But we knew they were funny. Like, as a little kid, I don't think I knew who Shelley Winters was or... Um, you know Phyllis Diller, but they were funny. And on um, on Match Game, uh, there was that guy Charles Nelson Riley. Do you remember him, Don? Charles Nelson Riley. I mean, as kids, we didn't really know who they were. Like I, I still don't. To be honest, I'm not sure I know what Charles Nelson Riley was famous for. But he was on Match Game, and he would have these devastatingly inappropriate uh, responses. I guess probably some of that was written for them. But I'd like to think that at least some of it was spontaneous. They always seemed like they were having a good time. You know, as kids, I think we I think we just enjoyed them because these people seemed to be having a great time. And, you know, everybody else on television seemed very serious and, you know, buttoned down and, you know, the news was very serious and everything. But uh, these people on the game shows, they said, you, you, wished your, you wished your parents could invite people over like these people on the game shows. I want to hang around with these people. 210-599-5555. Terry is on the radio. Hi, Terry. Hey. How you doing? Hey, Terry. Hey, how are you? Did you have a, did you have a game show uh, guy to name? I do. The uh, elusive Mr. Chuck Barris from the gong show. The gong show. I forgot all about that. Hey, for people that don't know, Terry, explain what the gong show was. Because younger people probably never heard of it. It was a talent show before your America's Got mm-hmm. Talent. And they had crazy acts, right. and they let you play on until you, they couldn't stomach you anymore. Then they rang the gong, and they pulled you off with a big hook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that was a time when we didn't care so much about people's feelings. <laughs> you know? They didn't, they didn't put their arm around them and say it was a nice try. They just banged the gong and ripped them off the stage. That's life. That's how life works. All right, Terry, good job. Chuck Barris on the gong show. How do you feel about Drew Carey on The Price is Right now? I always liked Drew Carey when he was a comedian and when he did that improv show. And i got to be honest, I don't watch it regularly, but I see it. You know, I kind of... Uh, Catch it muted. I'm not sure I'm liking him on The Price is Right. But I guess he's the right kind of person for that show. You know what I think it is? I think when you remember The Price is Right, 
with Bob Barker, really no one measures up. Kind of like The Tonight Show. I mean, Jimmy Fallon seems like a nice guy, but when you think about Johnny Carson, it just doesn't, you know, then it just doesn't work. See, I'm um, going to be a Debbie Downer yeah. on this one here. because Go ahead. Because um, Donnie it's, it's interesting. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the beard, but it seems like, do you remember when he was dating this... Um, I think I think she. Who was are like, we talking about now? Are we talking about are we talking about we're uh, talking about Drew Carey. Drew Carey, yeah, okay. And it just seems like he was dating this um, well-known lawyer, I think, out of California, and she was murdered. In fact, they were soon to be married, uh, just before oh. before her life was taken away. And it seemed like ever since that happened, he just doesn't yeah. seem to be the same person. Yeah. Now that's just, well. Um, I guess that would do it. So it's, it's, that, would, it just, that would that would change you know, anybody, right? It seems like his personality I, I, has changed, yeah. and and the you know how he directs the show and 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 hosts the show. It just seems like it it's kind of different. Where, from, where are you on Pat Sajak? How do you feel about Pat Sajak? That you know, it's interesting on Pat. Sajak. I I love his sense of humor. A lot of people do not because like his right. you know his dry. Humor. It can be very caustic, very dry, yeah. and very caustic. And but it seems like. I'm kind of wondering if he's stepping down because uh, social media has been beating mm. him up lately over, yes, over his I thought that too. attitude towards contestants. And, and he's, yep. uh, he's been kind of moaning and groaning about that. He's not a fan of social media at this I, point I think in time. You, I think you put your finger on it. I, I, really, I really don't think there's anything else behind this other than he's either fed up mm-hmm. or they are squeezing him out. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I just... Because he and it's a shame. He certainly hasn't lost anything. He's not aging or yeah. decrepit or anything. I hear people say they'd like to see Vanna White replace him, and I love Vanna White, mm-hmm. but I don't see Vanna White as the host. Well, they've been of Wheel of Fortune. I think they've been kind of grooming his daughter, and I'm kind of wondering I if he that. does yeah. step down. Does Van, yeah. will Vanna White step down, and does yeah. Pat Sajak's daughter take her place until they mm. you know find a host? Mm. I'm just kind of wondering if that will happen, but. That's you realize that Vanna White's Vanna White's job today could not even be created. We are going to hire you to be blonde, beautiful, say nothing, and turn the letters <laughs> artfully. No one would it, it would be a it'd be a scandal. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. How dare you? But people love Vanna White. Well, like on The Price is Right, they finally had to get a male model to... Uh, oh, man, I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. I, that doesn't work for me. And no, no offense to these guys. They're probably nice guys. But I do not want to see some dude with a beard stroking the fender of a Chevy Blazer <laughs> at, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm, not re- I'm just not... That's not making me, you know, want the, the, the prize showcase. You know what I mean? It just doesn't... They're they're probably good good people. I don't mean to run them down, but that we need we need we need the women to do that. Maybe we get a, a trans model to flip the. We need the binders full there. of women. Oh, see now you had to go there. You had you had to go there. Sure, there you go. How do you know we haven't already had a trans woman? Oh, could already have happened, Don Cooper. You don't know. They're good. You don't know. 50-50 was the result on our question. Do you expect Trump versus Biden next year to be the matchup? 50% yes, 50% no, like everything else in our politics. Um, we'll have a new JR poll question tomorrow. 
When we get started live at 4, or find the poll and this show on demand anytime at KTSA.com. Have a good night.